Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Kia ora and welcome to the Aotearoa Rugby Pod, a bit of a special edition recorded across a couple of days in a couple of studios so we could bring you the freshest news in world rugby about Scott Robertson and have a good chat about it. He is now the All Blacks coach as of 2024 when Ian Foster finishes after the World Cup. He spent the last couple of days preparing, talking to the board, making sure that he's got the job and he signed this afternoon. The next All Blacks coach, the people wanted Scott Robertson. <laughs> now they have him. He was very relieved. Oh, it's good to be here, everyone. <laughs> um, look, first I want to start off as... Um, all Black 974, um, to be able to coach the All Blacks means a lot to me. Um, I've been preparing, getting ready for this opportunity for a long period of time. You know, I'll be preparing as, as well as I possibly can, but my full respect and probably uh, professional, the boundaries that's required with the current group and making sure they set up so they can perform at this Rugby World Cup and, and go away and, and, and perform and get, get the World Cup for, for the All Blacks. So, it's great to be here today, but I understand um, my roles and responsibilities. Um, but extremely excited to make the phone calls to my mum and dad, Mo and Joe. It's pretty special. They're an emotional couple, um, and, and my wife Jane and, and my, my kids. So uh, yeah, it's been a big, big 48 hours. Been been here all day yesterday in a suit, and all day today in a suit, and presenting to a panel, and then, then to the board, and here we are now. So. You know, I made it pretty clear that it was my last year with the Crusaders, and and I wanted to um, become an international coach. And the process is where we are now. So, look, I'm I'm pretty loyal. <laughs> um, as I said before, as a proud player, now as a as a coach is something I've worked hard for. Right. So, what do the lads, Bryn Hall and James Parsons, think about this? Boys beaming in at late notice. Thank you very much for coming in, <laughs> James Parsons, Bryn Hall. Well, Jipper, first reaction, it kind of came out of the blue today. Yeah, I, I think they've obviously been running a thorough process uh, behind the scenes um, and obviously caught us on the hop. Um, but I think it's quite exciting. Uh, I think it just clears the, the runway for the team that's currently trying to you know, build towards a World Cup and, and allows, I suppose, Razor ample time alongside his job with the Crusaders to put his team together and his, his plans and preparations for 2024. We're obviously expecting him to become the next coach. There were rumours about Jamie Joseph, but I think everyone thought, OK, it almost happened last year. This is it, Bryn. 
Is any part of you surprised at the timing of this? Well, it's been the worst kept secret in New Zealand rugby for the last year, hasn't it? Um, there's been a lot of been a lot of chat around it, but um, no, I think Jamie Joseph is obviously is a great credential uh, for someone that's done a great job with Japan and um, the success that he had at the Highlanders as well, and I guess the development that he's had as a coach. Um, you know, he was a, a great candidate to have, but I think. In New Zealand, definitely knowing that Razor was probably going to be the best option, considering from 2019 when he uh, when he applied last time, the success that he's gone on to have not only at um, you know All Blacks when he first came in, but then also the development of the younger younger brigade that have come through the last three or four years. Um, he's shown definitely shown development and growth in his coaching um, to be able to grow certain areas that I guess the All Black and New Zealand Rugby Union have been wanting. So now, look, I think it's an exciting time. I'm glad that it's been done. Uh, we can stop talking about it now. This um, this Razor and um, Fozzie um, debacle. Now we can get behind Fozzie for the World Cup and then um, see what happens in 2024 when Razor takes over the job in that year. It's the right choice from your point of view, Jip? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The one thing I love about it is it shows that the New Zealand pathway um, is still alive and well to get to the top job. Um, he's had a hell of a lot mm. of success at under-20s. He's had a hell of a lot of success at NPC. Um, as much as it pains me to mention this again, because Bryn's here, he's had a lot of success at Super Rugby level, um, and and you know I think his resume stacks up for an opportunity to um, have a crack at the All Blacks job. And obviously, from your point of view, having spent so much time underneath him, how do you feel his style will translate into the international arena? Oh, I think it'll be it'll be great for them. I think something different. Um, I think you know we've probably seen. Um, with probably the last two coaches. There's been a lot of time spent in that group, and I guess there's been a succession plan from uh, Steve Hansen to then um, Ian Foster, but I think it's just going to be something different. Um, look, I know you've seen he's, uh, he's unorthodox and he's been different, and I think it's going to bring something really good for, uh, for New Zealand rugby, I think. Um, you know, first and foremost, you've got to be successful, and Razor's got the, uh, the resume to be able to do that. But I think what he does really well is that he develops young men coming through a system. Um, he's able to build a really great culture to be able to succeed. And then he has great coaches around him to be able to um, implement game plans and be able to get the best out of players. So when you're talking around resumes and, um, I guess, attributes to have as a coach, um, he's got all those abilities and it's shown through his success and his tenure in, in coaching. So really excited because I know personally, um, spending a lot of time with him, um, he's going to bring the best out of, out of that All Black group. And it'll be something different for the New Zealand public. And I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of chat around a lot of change and wanting that. Um, I guess Razor's going to be something different. And coming back to Jip's point, it's great to be able to see the pathway for New Zealand coaches to come through and not have to go over international and have that experience and then get in the top job, which um, which race is done in 2024. Bryn, you mentioned there the people around him. That's obviously been a strength up until now. We've seen the likes of Ron Nogara come all the way to the other side of the world to work with him. Chip, who do you see as the men he will surround himself with? Well, you'd like to think... Um, the one thing I've always sort of admired from afar... Um, never been coached by Razor, but he's not. He's he's quite self-aware in terms of where, you know, his weaknesses may be. So he he is actually got a knack for surrounding himself with the necessary people. So I'm sure he's got um, plenty of options in mind. Um, probably there's a number of super rugby coaches that are, that are around. You know, I think Leon's um, going to be able to put his hand up. He's he's been pretty successful with the Blues. Um, Jason Holland has been another one involved in that All Blacks 15. Clayton McMillan. Um, so it might decimate a few um, super rugby sides, but again, we we talk about that coaching pathway. It does create opportunities, and if we can get a um, you know a real clear picture for for coaches going from NPC through to super to the top job, I think it's an exciting thing for New Zealand rugby, and probably 
um, against what we've seen in, in previous, um, I suppose, decades when the when the coach has been selected. Uh, but I, I guarantee you, Jace Ryan's definitely staying. Um, and you know, there is I'm not too sure where Joe Smith's at, but there, you know, I know from a playing group perspective, there's a high desire um, for him to if there's space for him. Right, and I would imagine that you know there are people like Leon McDonald, Bryn, who people are talking about, who must be in the running here. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know I only spent a little bit of time with with Ringy, sorry, with Leon, but um, yeah, very good um, rugby brain. Um, when it comes to the attacking side, um, you know they're still using stuff that um, Leon Borden in 2017 with that Crusaders group. So he's a very very smart man, and I think he'd probably you had to think he'd be running the attack. Um, obviously, Jason Holland as well has a great experience around the attack. So. My biggest um, interest will be who will be the defence coach because there's a lot of good attacking minds in, um, in the, that, those coaching groups we've just said. But the defensive side, um, I'm not too sure who would go there. So um, Leon did it a little bit in 2017 with uh, the Crusaders, but you have to think that he'd be going to more the attacking side. So does a Tamini Williams, sorry, not Tamini Williams, um, Tamini Allison um, <laughs> come into the reckoning? Or Scott Hansen, who did a bit of defence coach um, for Japan, um, or even Clayton McMillan, who I know has done defence with New Zealand Māori. So... Um, I'm not, I don't know if it's going to be great for our um, Super Rugby coaches. I think there might be a, a new um, brigade coming in 2024 because um, I think Razor is going to be using a bit of the resources in New Zealand, which is which is great for New Zealand rugby, New Zealand uh, New Zealand coaches around for sure. You have to think, obviously from a PR point of view, this is great because he's got an engagement with the wider mm-hmm. public outside of the rugby public, whether it's just because he's the breakdancing guy. He connects with people, he connects with the crowd, he gives it this one, he does all of those things. History has been that All Blacks coaches are relatively dry characters, at least in front of the camera. You know, this is a a very, very different approach and bringing New Zealand rugby possibly into the modern age. Yeah, I think it's exciting, though, because he is infectious. He's an infectious character and uh, the public seem to connect really well with him. He connects well with all sorts of people. And I think that's what makes him such a good head coach. Uh, you know, he, he is that lens, you know, and I'm only going off what Bryn sort of said to us on this pod, but he seems to have a way of bringing people together and, and playing for something, you know, greater than themselves as individual and, and going on that sort of journey of a shared purpose. And um, and, and then he sort of surrounds himself with the technical, tactical um, skill sets that you need in terms of uh, the modern era of, of rugby. So I, I agree with Bryn, though. I think the defence coach uh, will be an interesting um decision but I mean base if Clayton McMillan's running that Chiefs there at the moment uh, I, I don't know again not someone I've been coached by but everyone speaks so highly of him and, and his expertise he's had a lot of success um, on the end of year tour with the uh, All Blacks 15 so you, you have to think the guys like Liam McDonald, Clayton McMillan and um, Jason Holland are right in the running with, with Jace Ryan there. Jip. Ian Foster hasn't been happy about the way that this has played out and the fact that it's happening right now and that it's not happening after the World Cup. It would be quite difficult, I would have thought. He would have to be quite a big man to come and say, OK, come on in. Yeah, oh, look, I don't think it'll happen. I don't think it's really about Fozzy. Um, I don't think, you know, Razor would probably want to be going into that environment. You've got to let that group, they've been on a journey um, up until this World Cup and you've just got to let them uh, go about their business. And although I know there's been, you know, a few unsettled parties throughout this, at least now we've got clear air and they can just focus on what they do. Uh, it's all said and done. And, you know, I think it's key for Razor to focus on the Crusader stuff. And, and it's a big beast, as we know, uh, taking on uh, head coach All Black role. So I'd suggest that he's probably using the next five months after that to 
one, canvas a lot of the other international teams and, and that sort of difference in style that may be critical, but, you know, planning and putting his team together so that he can hit the ground running in 2024. That's a great point. Having six, seven months in order to prepare before Super Rugby even starts next year, never mind the All Blacks starting mid-year. It is a position that no All Blacks coach has ever really had before. And in terms of preparation, Bryn, it would be nice for him to be the most prepared ever, wouldn't it? Well, that's it. And I know, I know Ray, he'll um, be very prepared around what that's going to look like. And uh, six months is a, is a long time. So I think it's great now that they've been able to have this conversation and, and make the appointment very early. Um, it would have been great if it had happened earlier, but I think six months is, is, is a lot more time than um, previous coaches have had in the past, um, straight after the World Cup. So um, I know that he'll be wanting to get the Crusaders job done, like I said, and then from there, five to six months, having the conversations, going to places where he needs to be, and he'll be that well prepared going into 2024 that um, he'll hit the ground running. I think you'll see immediate success um, in a lot of years with the All Blacks in 2024. Any last thoughts on this, Chip? Well, don't forget there's that beautiful competition, uh, the MPC, and, you know, there may be a couple of bolters he's looking at for 2024. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. Getting around a few grounds, talking to a few people, getting development lines set up. We could see we could see him like Eddie Jones in the in the stadium in Tauranga, you know, the domain, Blake Park, and just sitting there in, with his jandals. So yeah, it'd be interesting. <laughs> Do an Eddie Jones and start a podcast and just throw your ideas out there, <laughs> left, right, and centre. They could do it together. <laughs> yeah, that's something else. I really enjoy that. Uh, but yes, okay. Well, thank you very much, guys. Appreciate your time at short notice. Look forward to doing the show again next week uh, <laughs> from the other studio. So see you soon. Yeah. All right. In the meantime, with the magic of television, because we shot the show a little bit earlier, we'll send you now to what we shot earlier. Here's something we prepared. Kia ora and welcome to the Aotearoa Rugby Pod. So many things to talk about this week that we didn't really even know where to start. We had Ireland, clean sweep the Six Nations, but obviously you've got France there and behind them, and it's World Cup year, so there's a huge talking point about who is the favourite. Is it them or the home team? The Blues Crusaders was an absolute classic between two teams who thought would be at the top of the table, but currently sit fourth and fifth. And then we've had some great footy in Opiki as well in the final coming up. So very, very difficult to decide. Joining me for this episode, of course, James Parsons. To my lefties, he's coming to the studio today. We gave him his visa back to get over the Harbour Bridge. And over in Japan, Bryn Hall, former Crusader, who must have been pretty damn happy seeing the way his boys bounce back. Oh, it's good for my picks, lads. I think I went six from six, so now nah, it's a good, it a good week for me. Uh, but no, nah, look, it was a great spectacle. I think... Um, but both teams gave it absolute, um, gave it absolute hell. And I think, to be honest, uh, a few moments here and there, more and more touch on it. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely stoked on this side. Probably Jip isn't um, feeling the same. Uh, it was a great game of footy, mate. Just pure code head. It's <laughs> <laughs> team one, so they say. So they say. Well, the, the best team possibly lost the ball over the line twice. Yeah, but through some pretty yeah. special desperation in the defence. You know, like they. Ethan Blackadder absolutely smacking the ball out of Tucker from nowhere and then Willie Hines, the ever wily vet, getting one over Hoskins. So, you, you know, you, they've got to put themselves in the position to do it and they did it. Mm, mm, it was quite impressive. It was a very good game. The ebb and the flow, that was super rugby at its finest. Oh, well, and just, um, if, you, if you look at 
and I know I'm probably going too early, but statistically both sides slowed uh, phase one and two down a lot. I think it was sort of 3.4, 3.6 second uh, rucks for the Crusaders and I think it was around 3.84 seconds for the Blues. And we know both sides like to play with that speed of ball. So both sets of Lucy's and, and midfielders did a good job at the breakdown, but man, it was still pure entertainment and they found a way to score those tries from far. Most of them. You know, yeah. Mark Talia, welcome back, Lester Fayanganuku. He's he's definitely back. I thought Richie Moanga was huge. You know, he stepped up um, not only on attack, but some of his work defensively uh, to get back and save certain tries and then get back in a position to put that crossfield kick for, for Leicester was special. I know, Brent, you got big raps on that defence from Richie Moanga. Could you talk a little bit about that and what you've seen, I suppose, from being in camp with him and the way he approaches that last-ditch last defence? And there's been so many games that I've watched over the years, um, fortunate enough to play with him, that he finds himself in those positions to save tries, to be able to put the ball down or some form of defensive effort that he does. And so um, it doesn't happen by by accident because um, he works on our training. He always has this mindset around uh, moving your feet, keep your, keep your feet always moving. And so when you see that happening and you've got that mindset, um, there's situations where um, he's saving tries or doing something special in, in, that, in that respect. You, you've got to credit Sever Reese though, in the try that we uh, that he stopped, we're talking about, you know, if Mark Talea goes through, who gives it to Hoskins Tutu, who then frees up Rico Ioana, you would say nine times out of 10, those three men get across the white line. But Severis just held his width and bought time and time and time. And then Richie got across to make that tackle on Rico. You know, Sever makes half a tackle and then gets back in position. They eventually get the turnover. And then the way you should see, um, if you watch the tape again, Richie is just clapping his hands saying, give me the ball, give me the ball, because he could just sense that Leicester was free and that pinpoint kick and bounce. Um, it, was, it was such a display um, and he was just such a key figure in winning that game. In a, in a position, they, you know, 70% uh, possession to the Blues, you know, 60-odd percent territory, you'd think the Blues would get the job done, but I think that third, going down to 13 players was, was definitely crucial. Let's talk about that 13 players. That's a hell of a rule, and if anyone missed it, 13 players. OK, so you lose a man to a card who's already come on to replace someone who's injured. This person happens to be a front rower, so you need a specialist replacement. That takes you down to uncontested scrums. And because it's gone to uncontested scrums, the rules then penalise the team that took it to uncontested scrums and they lose another person, so they're down to 13. Bryn, that seems crazy to me. Like, that is a great way of ruining a game of rugby. Based, from what I understand, on the fact that they feel that teams could throw matches if they feel like yeah. they're getting dominated um, physically in the scrums, etc. Just off that scrum, you know, you're Finlay Christie popping down at eight and it's really massive around defending. Um, when you've got a nine, um, that's, that's not defending where you need to be, especially with the new laws and that. And then Fergus Burke chucks, chucks that bridge pass with the, with the ability to be able to go into that space. So, um, yeah, tough for the Blues, obviously, um, anytime you have 13 men. And I guess that rule, like you said, like you said, Ross, um, you know, it ended up costing the Blues in that sense with, the, with that try and even playing with 13 men for 10 minutes. I feel like I go on about some of these rules, but sometimes rugby just leaves me completely flummoxed. Like this in particular rule, we've seen it a bit in Six Nations in the last couple of years too. Do you like it? Well, you know it exists. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like I'm not yeah. saying I, yeah. Don't, yeah. I don't like it, but of course I don't love it. Yeah. You know, especially when the Blues go down to 13. And they but, cost two tries. But... You know, and it's it's really hard to have a crack at the Blues for discipline because they only gave away five penalties, but that was quite the crucial uh, penalty to give away. You know, after Alex Hodgman's injury, so um, it's very rare. I think the last time I can remember was when I was uh, back when I was playing. I think the Chiefs Hurricanes 
um, had had the same issue and there was a bit of confusion of how it actually worked. But it wasn't as influential. Not saying that was the making or breaking the game because I thought both sides fought really well um, to to put themselves in a good position. But it definitely um, you know stemmed the flow uh, for the for the Blues and left them short defensively. Mm. And the Crusaders took took their chances. Here's my problem with it, Bryn. Mm. It questions the integrity of every person and every coach yeah. involved in that game. It's basically World Rugby saying, we don't believe you. Uh, you know, and Alex Hodgman was injured. I, I don't know any front rower that would ever cop out. Like, you'd just rather get folded <laughs> before, you, before you started. You don't want to go backwards. That's your reputation and everything on the line, your future career. If, if you're choosing to do that to win a game, then I think you're in the wrong position. Yeah. Those kind of what-if yeah. situations, you could apply that to any situation in the game at all. Surely we've got to back the integrity of an injury of the medical staff. Oh, I, I think so. But I think, coming back to Jip's point, the rules are there, you know. So it's just an unfortunate situation where, you know, very rarely does this kind of happen where that was a scenario when then you go down to 13 men and it would have just been 14. So um, I can see where you're coming from, Ross, but, you know, unfortunately, you know, very rarely do you see these situations happen in a game, you know. So... Um, and luckily, I think, like what Jip was saying, it didn't have a massive influence on the game. It's not like that 10-minute that period cost them the game and the Blues weren't able to win the game from that. So even from that, they were able to still have opportunities to win, which I guess, I guess in turn, is a better way for it to happen. If it, if it ended up influencing the game where um, it's cost them the game, then, then obviously it's a bit tough on the Blues, but still had their chances to win. But the Crusaders, due to their, um, I guess, their defence in the end, um, won that game. I'm not sold. I'm not sold. <laughs> well, he's right, though. The Blues yeah. still put themselves in a position to win that game. They did. Whether that happened or not, they had the opportunities to win that But game. if they hadn't cost two tries while they only had 13 men on the field, they wouldn't have needed to score a try late. No, that's true. We could go all day. <laughs> <laughs> the butterfly effect. I, I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't have played out the same way. What I can say is it's completely unfair to have Ethan Blackadder against six other forwards. If you watch him scrum, so he's on his props scrumming, you know, it's obviously a big thing, but how quick did he get off to tackle Hoskins Satutu? Mm. Like, it was just unbelievable. He was, like, on him, like, instantaneously. We spoke about how much of a weapon Hoskin is off the back of the scrum, and it was great to see him going back to that, but... He met his match in uh, Ethan, that's for sure. I thought Hoskins had a great game. He was, he was the Blues player of the day. But, um, man, the battle between him and Ethan was, was special. Mm. And uh, the battle between anyone and Ethan for this All Black Six jersey this year, Bryn, is, is legit. Because a couple of years ago, he made a real impact, didn't he? Uh, you wonder this year whether he's the guy. You know, your current is your form. And so I think for Ethan, the, the start that he's had, coming back from a massive injury as well, you know, his, his work rate, I think, is something that um, is really special for him. The amount of work that he does off the ball, he never, ever seems tired. Like, if you watch him in a game, he just never seems tired. He, he has a massive motor and being able to keep going and moving his feet. But, um, yeah, I think with, obviously, Shannon Frizzell, not too long how, not too sure with how long he's out. And, obviously, with Akira injured at the moment, the two incumbents of the six in the last couple of years, um, them being injured, you know, you have to think that, that Ethan's definitely in the reckoning. And I think what the good thing for him as well is that he can cover all positions. He's even shown it at playing number seven against the All Blacks be there for Fiji in his first year. I mean, his ability to play eight and six. So I definitely think he's in the reckoning, whether that be at starting at six, but being in that All Black, all black spot, um, squad with his utility as a flanker will be massive for that group, I think, moving forward. He just never dies on a play. There was already three guys in that tackle on Tucker. Mm. He was going over, but out of nowhere, he just comes flying in with his hand and manages to dislodge that ball. A lot of players give up on that play. Yeah. They see three guys in that tackle and they're probably thinking, where do I need to position myself if it's held up or 
what it, you know, they'll be thinking about this sort of next. He's just like, nah, I can stop that. And he just rips it. Like, that's his attitude. He's just, like Bryn said, he's just non stop. And mm. he must have a massive engine, fitness wise, because, like Bryn said, to come back, even from round one, he was huge against the Chiefs. Each week, he's just getting better and better. Now, Jeff, we've had some questions about the Blues pack over the last few weeks. Well, they stood up. I do want to make a special mention of them, especially James Tucker. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago how important he could be. When Paddy went down, uh, Patrick Tuipolota went down against the Hurricanes, it was a big opportunity. And the Blues operated at 82% line-out time, which I know isn't world-class standard, but if you think back to the final, that, that's quite a big shift, and, and it mm. kept them in the game. And then they held the Crusaders to 63%, which is unheard of, and, and Bryn will agree with that. Like You hardly ever see them below 90 uh, let alone in the 60s. So I think it was a big night, um, you know, especially with those yellow cards and the fight and the grit. And I thought, you know, James Tucker, man, he left everything out there. You know, he was equal top tackler, you know, 16 odd carries. He's into his work and, and he created that space uh, for Riccatelli and, and Vikina to find um, clean ball at line out time for the most part. So I think it was a massive step in the right direction. And we'll, I know they lost, but it'll give them a hell of a lot of confidence, especially when they come up against sides like the Brumbies that are, that are so. Uh, forward dominated maybe in the finals or you know the Crusaders as well in that finals period they can they can really build on although they're two losses I think the type five has, has performed pretty well. So that'll be no let up this week for the Crusaders with the Brumbies Bryn they've got to get that line out right. Yeah they will and I know that um you know they'll be doing the review around um, how they can be better and I guess you know it does just show that you know obviously losing Cullen Grace and the line-out has been, you know, really massive for um, for the Crusaders. And I think, you know, obviously Sione Harvilli is a great ball carrier and brings something a little bit different to, to um, Cullen Grace. But, you know, the reason why the Crusaders' line-out is so good when you've got, obviously, Barrett, Whitelock and Cullen Grace being able to jump, um, it's a very good variety of options that they can have at line-out time. But they'll go away um, and they'll, they'll definitely um, have to be, be a lot better because you know how good the Brumbies is, not only just in the attacking side with their line-out mauls and how they ex exert pressure that way, um, they're definitely good around the defensive side of it as well. So, yeah, they'll be looking at that 63% and definitely wanting to make it better around the high 80s and 90s like they usually are accustomed to seeing. But what did the Blues do to put the Crusaders in a position where they weren't winning their lineouts? I, I think it's key what Bryn said. Like, having that third legitimate lineout option is so crucial. Like, if you look at the Blues, obviously, Tucker, you know, they had two tall boys. You know, Sui Fu is a, a good option, but having Robinson and Plumtree on the bench to come in, and then Hoskins is world-class at line-out time. So mm. there's a few more threats, so that gives them the ability to manipulate the defence, whereas defensively for the Blues, they knew that Whitelock and Barrett would be their main target and tried to force them to maybe use like a Blackadder or a, um, a Havili um, and, and that space, which aren't always the easiest. When you've got a little bit of a shorter line-out, it, it is a harder thrower, and, and you're so used to... Um, throwing to guys like Whitelock and Barrett and Cullen Grace, that there is there is a change. But I think just because they felt those were the two guys they wanted to marry up on, and, and they did a good job, which put hookers under pressure. Before we move on, uh, I think we're almost contractually obliged to spend at least two minutes <laughs> talking about how good Mark Talera is. Uh, Jipper, the floor's yours. Oh, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been waxing lyrical about him for probably too much. I think his try <laughs> said it all. Like he, talk about Ethan Blackhead not dying on a play. That man does not die on a play. He he's constantly looking for work, and I'll probably let Bryn because I don't want to give Mark too big a head because I've been pumping his tyres up. It's <laughs> between him and Cam Roygaard, I can't get enough of. <laughs>
because I can't wait to touch on Cam Roy going, he was outstanding in that Hurricanes game. But um, no, look, yeah, I think you're right. That first try just shows everything that Mark does um, at Super Rugby League and obviously at the world um, at, with the All Blacks as well. His ability to be able to break tackles, he does it every single time. And you think he's going to die with the ball, he finds a way to get out of it and sneak through and being able to get through um, contact. So, and then a the world-class finishing ability, being able to step rich in the inside and then uh, being able to score that try. Um, was a hell of a start for um, for the Blues, and I guess had that seven 0 start after that, that try. But I just want to also say around Leicester firing a you're probably the forgotten man. Mm-hmm. I think of um, wingers. Welcome back. Talking around um, Sean Stevens, um, Narawa, even Sotoro have been going really well for the Chiefs. I think that was his best game, and probably wanted to stamp a mark. And knowing that Mark has obviously taken that position, possibly um, at the back end of that um, that Northern Hemisphere tour. So I thought he was great. His ability to be able to, um, I know Richie Moanga probably nails that kick, but can definitely see that Leicester's calling for that ball and in the picture of him being able to get that ball and finish was world-class as well. So I um, just want to tip my hat to, to Leicester. I thought he had one of his great games, Um, you know, obviously coming back from last year as well. It was a difficult take oh. and RTS is a good cover defender. And he's quick. It's, yeah. It looked like Leicester had an, an extra turn of pace. Like he looks, his, his physique mm. looks lean. Um, he looked hungry. Uh, it was, a, it was a, actually a good even battle, I'd say, of the two 11s. You know, I thought Caleb was strong as well, mm. but um, I mean... As I said earlier in the show, it's welcome back Leicester Fyang Nuku. Like he, he, I think he'll grow an arm and a leg from that and he'll be a real force for the rest of the season for, for the Crusaders. Those outside back spots come oh, the World Cup are God. really interesting. Well, Bryn just said then, if you look at the Chiefs back three, mm. you know, Imani Nawara was exceptional in attack, but even defensively, um, you know, he blew through that ruck, got the ball, they turned over, they kicked down there and they, they scored, I think it was uh, Sean's second try. Um, but yeah, it's just, man, there's some awesome talent out there in those backs. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. At the moment, and um, yeah, I, I think, you know, Sean Stevenson as well, he can play wing, fullback. He, if he keeps playing the way he is, he, he has to be factored in, in World Cup selection. You know, we've seen in the past guys like Nehemi Scudder bolt into it. Um, you know, he, he's, there's definitely always room for someone, especially in those outside back positions. If someone's in form, you've got to back the form horse. Got to go that golden touch. Yeah, and that's what he's got at the moment. It's ridiculous. Yeah, the ball yep. just comes his way. In fact, Bryn, the ball bounced the Chiefs away a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. but you've got to put yourselves in that position to be able to do that, you know. So um, even though the Chiefs were probably just a touch off against the Rebels, um, they weren't as, I guess, clinical and I guess the attack structures have been able to build pressure and, um, and be clinical. But when they needed to be, they were able to score points. I think, you know, the kicking game of Paul Higby and um, Alex Nankerville 
were massive. And I think uh, we talk around the outside backs, but as you know, Jim, any good inside backs, if you could put your outsides away and being able to put them in positions, I think Paul Hepi and, and um, Alex Nankerville have been great blue men for that, uh, for that back line. And I think even Bryn Gatlin, you know, they've got such depth at the moment at 10. I thought he had a great game around his game management and being able to um, put, the, put them in the right areas of the field. So I think it just shows as well. Oh, sorry, and another one, uh, Finau, you know, he came on real early and I thought he was really impactful and brutal around the breakdown area and as someone that you can probably see in the future, I think, has a big future. But um, it just shows the depth that the Chiefs have at the moment. I know it wasn't perfect, but at the same time, they gave guys opportunities and they were still able to come away with a, with a pretty good one against um, my, my lovely Rebels. The, the one thing I'm loving about the Chiefs is, one, this probably wasn't their top side, so they gave guys opportunities. Those guys took the opportunities, which mm. creates competition and tough selections. But it's their play... That in terms of making decisions, like you, you have systems and structures, but their kick strategy probably wasn't the one they executed. But because the back three and, and Brins explained what the pendulum is was was all at sea, they just kept going there. Eight hundred and something, eight hundred and thirty odd kick meters compared to five hundred. Most other sides throughout the weekend were around that five hundred mark, so they kicked a hell of a lot more than they usually do. But that's because the pitches were right there and they made the right decisions. And I think that's the most dangerous because we talk about the preparation during the week and planning and understanding how a team plays. The Chiefs can do you both ways. They can do you in structure, mm. but they're probably the most um, effective at the moment in terms of getting outside comms to let the people on the inside make the right decisions. And I think that's the most exciting. Even Poi Hippie's chip, you can see Imani Nawara coming from depth, like pointing, kick it, kick it, kick it. He, he, it didn't even matter that he was telling them because he knew no one was there. And then, you know, his X Factor did the rest. Let's just touch on the final from Opiki before we get to the heat that the Irish have sent our way on the YouTube um, after comments last week. Big final in Opeki, Chiefs versus Matatu. Matatu. It's yeah. hard to imagine it going any other way but Manawa. I think so. You, you, it's just the forward dominance. I, I, there's no point in me going over it all again, but when they're in trouble, that's what they go to. Um, and, and to be fair to the polar, they stunted it at the start, but they still found ways to score out wide. The Chiefs, you know, um, Carla Hohepa with that first try was was pretty special. Um, so I, I just think that, up, you know, Matatu got off to a great start uh, last time they played. So it'll just be, can they stunt that forward dominance, that driving wall, scrum, are they going to have the ability to stop? Because if they stop that, they're in the race. Mm. But they're going to have to do it for 80 minutes because even if you stunt it, as we saw on the weekend, for, for 20 or so minutes, it's not going anywhere. They will keep coming and coming and coming and, and you know, it's, it's a weapon. I want to take a second to give Carla Horhepa her props. She's 37 years old. Doesn't there look is it. a lot of midfield talent going around. Two tries, veteran of I don't know how many test matches, Bryn, I really probably should have done the research on that. But quite an incredible performance considering... No, she was. She was massive influential around, you know, scoring two tries. And I think, um, you know, we talk around a lot of midfielders that have played really well um, during this Opiki competition. But, yeah, anytime you can have the experience of Carla Horhepa, who's played um, in big moments, big games, um, you know, she's been able to play like that. And I, but I think it just comes back to the the forward dominance that um, the Chief Manawa have had the whole competition. It gives the likes of, um, you know, Horhepa and, and Co to be able to give the outside backs, like we've talked about Willison um, and obviously Paul as well, the ability that they have on the on the edge. You know, if you stop them at set piece, they'll score in the, on the outside edge, whether they breathe through their distribution or Hazel Tubic put in attacking kicks. 
the Mata 2 um, forward pack are, are going to have to be on for the whole 80 minute. And I don't think it's just the starting eight. It's the bench that comes on and being able to have a, an 80-minute 80, 80 performance mindset because um, if you let up for maybe five minutes, two tries, if you're not, it's, it's a scrum penalty, it's a line-out more, you're in the 22, they go to their forwards. If they're tight, then they use the attacking kicks or they go out to wit. So, um, you know, the Mata 2 will take confidence the first 20 minutes that they played them last time. They were able to score points, but can they do it for long enough for the whole 80? Um, you know, if you look at the the competition, you have to say it's it's a step too far. But they have take they could take some confidence from that first twenty minutes. But it's going to be a tough ask for Mata too, and I think uh, the Mata will get the job done. The wingers, oh. oh, you mentioned Paul before. She's been outstanding. We've seen Colosse, we've seen Vahakolo, we've seen a whole bunch of incredible wingers this year. It's a spot in the Black Ferns that's up for grabs. Where do you see them going? Oh. There's got to be probably, I mean, you've named, you know, Robins Retty has to be yes, in the mix Patrick. as well. Um, I think 11 sewed up, um, Aisha Rutienga. I think mm. that her, she's, she is premium dominance in that 11 jersey and, and has have that proven form. 14 is a logjam. Mm. I, I really struggle when, when we saw the, uh, this question come through to actually nail it down, but with Robins Retty having had experience, the form she's showing, um, you'd probably say she's got the inside running, but those Blues wingers, and I'm not being biased, but they, they've definitely put their hand up. Colosse is an out-and-out -out right winger. Um, I think Vahokolo could play right wing, but she is quite um, the power winger as well, so potentially a good backup to Litienga. I was wondering who I was going to ask this question to, because obviously Bryn's a back, but you're a hooker, so scoring in the corner is part <laughs> of the game. Uh, <laughs> just, just hanging out there waiting yeah. for that ball to come. Oh, yeah. The, when Robins Retty went into the corner and she had that no try and she switched the ball in midair from one hand to the other, I, it was a phenomenal piece of skill, even though she didn't score it. I, I was sitting there going, wow. Yeah, the, the probably one similar that I've been witness to is Matt Duffy against the Brumbies in Canberra where he did something similar, but it was a no try as well. He, he forced it, but it was on the line um, and considered out. I, I don't know how they even get in the air that high. You'd have to ask Colsey, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> he scored more tries than me. Yeah. I, I've never got the opportunity to, but um, oh, I mean, that's what we, I can't answer the question who's going to get selected, mm. which, you know, is, is rare for me to not have a strong opinion. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's just really hard. Like Paul as well, like her out and out pace to score that try, um, it's, it's a good problem to have for, for Alan Bunting. Mm, absolutely. Bryn, where would you go? It's just, again, I think they're obviously with Litienga. Um, she's proven in that position, and um, I think she'll be definitely be the 11. But then you could go five or six, like you talk about, you know, Robertson, Letty, you talk about the Blues wingers, um, you talk around Mata 2, we haven't even talked about, um, you know, their experience that they have with Grace Diamond, who probably hasn't actually played a lot as well. So, and even Willison, I know Renee Holmes has been playing really well at 15, but, you know, you have to think, Willison, can she cover that 15 and even as a 14 role? as well. So, um, look, Alan Bunting's got a tough job. You just have to think Letty Inger uh, through her experience and what she can bring on that left wing, but you could have five or six players on that right-hand side, uh, right-hand side wing that um, you could choose. But right now, I I'm not too sure. I, I can't really say that um, who I would choose because they're all playing so well. You'd have to think maybe Robertson Letty possibly, uh, but there's just so many. I wouldn't be able to tell you. The other person I was thinking is it could be Maliepo. Like, she looks great at fullback. She can play in the midfield, but she has that balanced powerful, great running style. She could easily be a test winger. She could, but I think she's got a lot more to offer in the 10, 15, you know, potentially 12 axis now. Um, mm. her, her form 
Um, she's really come to life. And, and I think she's a real opportunity because um, of her ability to play so many positions to be the backup 10, you know, 12, 15 role on the bench if she can't push her way into that starting side. Um, you know, she's had time outside of the squad, but she's definitely come back with a... a, a a game that looks balanced, but also matured. Like she's not overplaying her hand. She's making great calls when to tuck, mm. but also when to offload and and also to inject when she's playing at 15, injecting herself into the game when and if needed. And and we all know she's got a kicking game as well. So definitely could play on the wing. There's no doubt. I think she could probably play every position across the back line except for halfback. So will definitely be a squad member surely. It'll be interesting to see where she plays this weekend in the third, fourth playoff. Blues versus Power. You know the Blues could have easily been in the final. Um, They've changed their backline regularly. I quite liked Cottrell with Demand at 12 and Brunt at 13, I, and then shifting Maliepo to the back. It's a pretty potent attack. Yeah, it is, and, and um, I think Cottrell is quite a good distributor and, and um, you know that sort of old-school first five that can get around and have those double touches. There's a couple of loop players that really created space. I think they scored off one of them. Um, so it seemed to be a really good balance, and and I, I thought um, Rohe did a great job at 12. You know, like she didn't try to overplay her hand, she didn't try to command proceedings. She she played her role for the team, and that shows why she's such a great leader. Mm -hmm. It was really strong. Where do you think it'll go this weekend, Bryn? Blues v Power? Tough one because I think yeah, the Power had their chances, and I think they've continually gotten better throughout the competition. But um, I think. I just think the Blues, I think they just have enough. And I think um, having Ruhe at the Mont, you know, having her in and around, whether that be at 10 or 12, I think she's always going to be pivotal in those big games. But, um, yeah, I'll just go the Blues closely. Uh, but the Poe have definitely got better. I thought they were the most improved team uh, from last year for sure. Mm, mm. OK. Well, I've been teasing it all night. Six Nations. Uh... <laughs> We were actually going to start, we were supposed the show, to start the show, but, but you, you opened up asking Blue, Blues Crusaders to two of these yeah. halfwits. They were always going to get off a, down a rabbit hole. We got fired up, and then I just stuck with the local rugby. But yeah. quite frankly, the Six Nations was again superb to watch on the weekend. It is one of those years. It's World Cup year. We really need to get into how important the Six Nations is now. I think it's important to mention straight off the back that only twice in the history of the World Cup since it's gone into the professional era has a team that's won either the Six Nations or the Rugby Championship slash Tri-Nations has gone on to win the big dance, which is interesting in itself. It just shows that form isn't necessarily all that key, guys, from early on in the season as to what happens in the big tournament. With that being said, we're... Pissed off a few Irish people in the comment section on YouTube along the way. Um, because um, we've talked the French up big time. And I think maybe we've been misunderstood, Jipper, in that we're not talking down Irish. It's just there's something cool about the French that we've enjoyed. But the Irish, I mean, they've, they're unbeaten this year. Yeah, I think it's, to be fair, like a couple of weeks ago, before the England game, the French-England game, both Bryn and I said, we, you almost need a statement performance because you sort of forgot about the French and, and you know, we were saying that the Irish were just out and out number one. Mm. Um, I, I still think that is the case. In terms of their structure, and what I love about Ireland is the fact that they go for the full complement. Johnny Sexton, quick tap, tries to go for the try. Um, you know, they go to the corner, they're relentless. That's how they won the series in the ABs because they suck the tank dry. 
mm. and they just keep going to the corner and they want sevens, not threes. So, but they are very system orientated. Like, I mean, it's like having a coach out there when you've got six and at 10. They're great at orchestrating it. They're a much better side with Jamison there as well. Like I thought he was great on the weekend. But the thing about the French is one at home, like in terms of, that is a big factor. Um, them being at home for the World Cup in, in terms of that favourites tag, and if I was the Irish fans, I wouldn't want to go in as favourites, you know, because then then the pressure's all on all on the French, and and two, I think the French are really hard to preview, because the the it's that French flair, like mm. the way they kept the ball alive against Wales was just freakish, and and that they they that never they don't want to go to breakdowns. If they go to breakdowns, they want to play pop touch or, you know, you know, one cleaner and Dupont's got the ball. So I think they are from a um, from a preview side. It's really hard to prepare yourself defensively to come against because they just want to keep the ball alive and they're prepared to chance their arm, mm. and that's dangerous. And and the fact that they play it so fancy free, even when the pressure's on, shows that that's what we're probably going to see at World Cup time. And I'm sorry, but those fans are a 16th player or a 24th player, however you want to look at it. Uh, the, the passion and the joy that the players get out of being in front of them is, is massive. But make no bones about it, the Ireland are the full, mm. the full real deal. But it's a little bit like the All Blacks when they go on those sort of winning ways. People sort of just forget about them. And because you're doing so well, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, they're doing well. And, and people focus on other teams where they could improve. But... I still think it's neck and neck, but the home advantage gives them the nudge. Ireland are so strategic and they're so disciplined and detailed with their, with their shape. You know, you've got to be on the job the whole time. But I think looking at that game for the first 30 minutes, you know, England probably showed world rugby, I think, where you can try and put pressure on Ireland. If you can win the physical breakdown area and being able to slow down their ball and be really, um, really disciplined in your defence, you can actually take away from what the Irish are trying to do to you. Um, and there are actually a lot of uncharacteristic little mistakes trying to overplay their hand, whether it be with little tip balls out the back and not being able to um, get ball into hand, whether it was a knock-on or going on the ground, and really put pressure on England before that red, before that uh, red card happened to Stewart at the, at the, start, at the, the um, back end of that first half. So um, the physicality and the breakdown area, I think, for Ireland, if you can stop there, and I think that's what the French do really, really well because um, they've got a great loose wall trail, but then Fiku and Dante on the edges, um, they've got the great ability to be able to turn over ball. And then once that turnover ball comes into comes into play, you talk around Dupont, Intermac, Pinot, and all those guys with their, with their flair that they have, they can break open a game. And I thought Intermac on the weekend as well, the way that he was able to, to break through the line and put players away, um, they've got a lot of Arsenal in their attacks. So, um, yeah, but I do think the French being at home is just going to be so much harder. And I think, you know, obviously Ireland are number one in the world and, you know, we've, we've locked, we've looked about them for what, two years now, how are they play? So we're not saying that they're not the best team in the world, but the French and how they can play, especially in France, um, it's going to be tough for them and any, anybody in world rugby really to get the job done in France. Oh, Johnny Sexton, let's talk about him. All-time top point scorer in the Six Nations. 560 points, passes Zogara, his 60th and final Six Nations test. Where does he sit in the Pantheon? I want your Mount Rushmore of first fives. Four picks. Is he one of the guys yep. carved into stone? Yep. Easily, because when he yep. plays, it, it's such a... So you don't see it that often that one player can make such a difference. But when he's off the field, they are a different side. Not saying they're a poor side, but they just... He, he is just a student. You know, when you have guys like Joe Schmidt, with the rugby IQ he has, 
speak so highly of this guy. Issa Nathewa is the same of, of how amazing Johnny Sexton is. They've seen the best players throughout mm. their careers and they've coached and been a part of great um, first five. Like he is, he's the pinnacle, especially at the moment. Like uh, just unbelievable. I, I think a dec- a Daniel Carter has to be there, um, and I, I think you know you can't leave Johnny Wilkinson out of it. He was he was pretty influential. And then the other one for me is, is Stephen Larkin. Like I just think in his day he was he was simply superb. And all four of those players won new games, mm. you know, individually or with the help of others. But they were the they were the centre point of of winning fixtures. You've gone with all people from the professional era. I think that's fair enough. It's pretty hard to compare to players back in the day. You know, if you're talking Michael Lyon or Grant Fox. Yeah, or, or Mertens, Fox. You know, there's, there's yeah. plenty of them. But I, I just think. You know, they'll admit the game, and you know, in 10, 15 years' time, the game's going to be different than mm. you're probably naming other people. But I suppose it's what I grew up with mm. um, and grew up remembering is, is how I sort of chose it. Can't Who's really, can't really <laughs> talk about games I never saw. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised Carlos didn't, you know, get a scratching in there at least. Pretty hard, man. Like, you'd think of those four. Yeah. I suppose if the, it was super rugby, it would be like Richie Moanga, Carlos oh, Spencer. Spencer. I suppose what I, why I say Carlos, because he obviously doesn't have the test resume that any of those other people have. But when I think about the most influential yeah. in the way the game is played now, the, the, the skills that the players have now and you look at who brought those skills into the game, more often than not, it comes back to Carlos Spencer. And, I, and so I kind of think, well, he's almost like he's your, he's your wild card pick because while he doesn't have that influence, while he doesn't have the greatness at test record, probably none of those players on that list have influenced anyone else as much as Carlos Spencer has influenced those players. Oof. That's a big call. It's a big call. But he just he, he kind of changed the game, even though he didn't win the game always, if you know what I mean. Yeah, he did the knee kicks and I know the what passes. And... I, I loved Carlos Spence. He was my favourite my favorite player growing up because of the, the things you're talking about, Ross's X Factor, and I guess bringing um, something different to, the, to rugby, whether it be a knee kick, a, a kick from the back, a flick pass, or his running ability. But when you talk about Mount Rushmore, you know, the stats have to be able to back that up as well. Hmm. You know, you look at Johnny Sexton, you look at Wilkinson, you look at um, Carter. Larkin as well, a two-time World Cup. Oh, no, sorry, not, I don't know if it's two-time. but won a World Cup as well. And so, yeah, I think when you talk about Mount Rushmore, um, you've got to be able to have the stats that back it up as well. So um, I actually agree with Jip. Those are my four that I went with. You could argue, you could maybe put Bowden Barrett in there, but I didn't think if you're talking around like, um, you know, stats and playing um, you know, consistently as a 10, um, he probably wasn't at the stage of where um, those other four were. But um, To be fair, if I was to carve into stone my Mount Rushmore, I'd go with the same as you guys. I wouldn't put Carlos on there. But I love to throw that in there because, yeah. for me, I don't think that he gets enough respect for the influence he's had on everything that's followed him. You know, it's like, it's like the band you've never heard of that all of the other bands loved. And, and then you hear their songs and you go, oh, I, I see. You know what I mean? He definitely, it's similar to the way I talk about Colsey, how he sort of changed a generation of the way hookers play. Mm. Carlos changed, especially in New Zealand, a generation of the way 10s play. And probably mm. was the first 10 that rather than being the tactician and just putting the ball in front of forwards and, and you know, sort of sitting a little bit deeper, he took the game two teams and, and you know, was prepared to chance his arm. And, and now it's just a common practice that everyone chances their arm. <laughs> you know, two metres out from the line, we see a crossfield kick to Lester Whanganuhu and it ends up in a try at the other end. I mean, that's, that's the sort of influence he's probably had on guys like that. Even on the weekend in Opiki, there was a centre kick that I saw. That I know that that was something that happened way back in the day, but 
Carlos is the guy who kind of brought that into Super Rugby as well. They're little yeah, things the that you see. Back to Doug Howlett. It was beautiful. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. So I don't have to sell you on it. Oh, no, no you don't. <laughs> no, but when I next see him, he's going to go, mate, no Mount Rushmore. No Mount Rushmore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And look, feel free to just give it to me in the comments section and give us your Mount Rushmore within the comments section. Really keen to see it. Um, don't have to include Carlos Munson, but you can include abuse of me within that particular area. So, the other thing that we saw within that Ireland-England game was a red card to Freddie Stewart. Um, it was obviously an accident. It was obviously a clash that we saw that, you know, it was just one of those things that can't be avoided. But the laws are black and white. It was a red card. I've seen Aaron Smith has since chimed in on Twitter responding to someone saying, hey, these clashes can't be avoided, this isn't fair, saying, yeah, actually, I feel like context needs to be taken into consideration. Should context be taken into consideration? It's, well, the precedent's been set so that they would have to, you know, definitely make a, a change to the system. Like, refs' hands are tied. You look at Angus Tarval's one, that was game-changing in terms of that Irish series. It's no different here. Like, he, Jaco Piper was, he has to do his job that he's, you know, employed to do, and that's the framework he's been given. So you can't have a crack at the refs, but I, I do like, I'm loving the Super Rugby at the moment, giving the yellow taking the sting and emotion out of it. They've got eight minutes. Like, I'm not trying to, you know, sort of talk up our product, but it does seem to, you know, it sort of comes... Maybe there could have been a red card on the weekend that mm. stayed a yellow. I agree with that. Um, but by then, the game's moved on and the emotion's out of it. I think when you're forced to sort of be judge, jury and executioner on the field, cameras on you... Um, it puts a lot of pressure on one person. It doesn't matter if he's talking to the TMO, everyone but it blames Piper. So I think the system could potentially be changed, which then would allow context to come in, into it because you've got time. Because we all want the ball in play. Everyone doesn't want to be looking at replays. And the sad thing is this is what we're talking yeah. about instead of Ireland winning a Grand Slam. And, um, you know, so it, it's definitely... It hurts the game. Mm. So I think change. But I'm all for protecting the head. And if this is the way it has to be... Then, and, uh, rather than not, mm. that's probably the extreme you want to have. Coming into a World Cup, you just think now knowing that we've talked about the last couple of years, there's going to be a red card situation that happens in a big game and we're going to start talking about it. It's not going to be based on around the merits of that competition. It's going to be based around a decision from the ref that, you know, on the weekend there were no mitigating factors. His body height was up high. There was no mitigation factors. And what's been talked about the last couple of years, it's a red card. So whether there's context involved or not, what's been told us, the guidelines the last couple of years, anything towards the head, no lowering of the height, and it doesn't matter which body part of your body part is going to hit it, you're going to get a red card. So, But the 20 minutes would be much better. Um, it would give the advantage to the team that gets given the red card. Red card. They can still have the advantage of playing with 14 men, for example, Ireland. Uh, yeah, for example, Ireland, but uh, 40 minutes is then hard to be able to um, try to win a game with 40 men for 40 minutes. You know, we, we had a lot of issues at the last World Cup where, you know, there were red cards it's, and things, and it, and it really spoiled the tournament to a degree. But it's going to if it's... It's, it's going to. Yeah. It's going to. It's definitely going to. Like, we've talked around the last couple of years, and whether it be Six Nations, Super Rugby, or whatever competition it's been, this is going to happen, and we're going to start talking about it. So having initiatives like we do at Super Rugby or um, with like that, it takes away all that stuff, and you can still pay the price um, for your for your red card act, but it's not 40, 50 minutes. Nothing worse coming to a final, for example, and there's a red card in the first five minutes. You've got all those viewers watching. You've got all the all the people watching. And for 75 minutes, you've got to play with 14 men, um, and what it just ruins the spectacle. So we'll wait and see. Hopefully, 
post rugby world cup those changes can be made from the northern hemisphere mm. but i think that's my point though if you do something deliberate you deserve to be down to 14 men mm. for 75 minutes but if you do something like that like i just don't know where he goes yeah he can't disappear similar yeah. to angus tarvel we understand it don't get me wrong but i think you know there's potentially a, a system that's been utilized in super rugby pacific that could you know potentially help situations like this before we go, I just want to pick your brains, Bryn, because we haven't given enough credit to Antoine Dupont. I think we've only spoken about him for about five seconds in this. I want to know, Bryn, how hard it is to be running and throw a 25-metre pass pinpoint to your winger like that. Like, how difficult is that? And how do you go about approaching that? Yes. It's pretty difficult, I can give you that. So I haven't actually made a lot of line, line breaks to be able to do that pass, so... DuPont's probably done that a lot more than me, but no, nah, it, it, it just shows how special this guy is, you know, to have the ability of getting that offload and then knowing that the winger Pinot, who was on the sideline, and being able to put it right in front of him, full stride, with no stop, um, it just shows how much um, how much class this guy has. Um, so he's going pretty well to being 2023 best player in the world because he continues to keep influencing in big games, um, whether that be run, pass, kick or defence. I, th- I think Pinot deserves a little bit of credit as well. Like, so often you can see wingers overrun like that in terms they they hit the um injectors too soon and then ball will actually land behind them and they don't but he just timed his run he wasn't going full tilt it was until it left his hands that's when he burst onto it he kept his depth to allow the pass to actually do its work in the air and then bang he knew he just had to be patient and catch it and go it comes back to the feel you need to have as a rugby player and so you know the ability of knowing if i go a bit too fast here uh, it puts a lot of pressure on the pond as well for that pass if you're if you go too hard and um, it can end up hitting the back shoulder or you're not going to be able to regather that ball. So, yeah, real good feel with Pinot. Um, his ability to be able to hold his, hold his, hold his run and then get the ball full flight, not being able to stunt his, um, his running too much, um, it just shows. But again, DuPont, man, um, he's a pretty special guy and I think having it in France as well, he's going to be, a, I guess, a real good World Cup attraction for the French um, and their ability to try and win that World Cup in, um, in a few months' time. I know he sits on the end of a lot of tries, but... It's really hard to keep your width, I reckon. Like, you see how busy wingers are, but so often or not, he's Johnny on the spot because he's been disciplined enough to hold that width, which isn't easy when you want to be involved in the game. And it's actually a, it's a, it's a strong discipline that he gets rewarded for time and time again, but it doesn't look like he's working as hard as he probably is because mentally he's like, I want to get in there and I want to touch the ball. Uh, but it, they've obviously got a clear system to hold that width, and he... I don't know, he's in some great form in terms of the system. He lets all that happen in the middle, and then he just hangs out on the edge and, and just waits for his time to get over the line. He's, he's, and he's pretty special as well when he gets his one-on-one opportunities. Mm. It was stunning. It was the reason why we watch rugby. <laughs> Suddenly this winger pops out of nowhere, a huge pass goes, it's a try. Let alone the 14 offloads before <laughs> that got DuPont free. Yeah, so yeah, we, we love the French. We also love the Irish. Love the Irish. We love the Irish. So. I'm quarter Irish. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness me, you missed out an opportunity for, you know, you could be a Six Nations champion already. Oh, yeah, I don't know if I'd be good enough. Sheehan's an absolute freak. No, he's good. Jeez, he's good. He's got it all. Yeah. He's got it all. Okay. Well, thank you very much once again, Jipper. Beautiful. Good talking thank code you. with you. Bryn, thanks for tuning in with us once again. That was the Aotearoa Rugby Pod. We'll catch you again next week with another show when we look back at the Opiki final more Super Rugby, and we'll probably talk a bunch of selections and more World Cup stuff, because we love it. Catch you then. Matua.